Chapter Twenty Five of Quit Your Worrying by George Wharton James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gillian Hendry. Worries and Hobbies. Though these words are much alike in sound, they have no sympathy one with another. Put them in active operation, and they rush at each other's throats far worse than allies and Germans are now fighting. They strive for a death grip, and as soon as one gets hold, he hangs on to the end, if he can. Yet, as in all conflicts, the right is sure to win in an equal combat. The right of the hobby is absolutely certain to win over the wrong of the worry. Webster defines a hobby as a subject or plan which one is constantly setting off, or a favourite and ever-recurring theme of discourse, thought or effort. But the editor of The Century Dictionary has a better definition, more in accord with modern thought, namely, that which a person persistently pursues or dwells upon with zeal or delight, as if riding a horse. Are you cursed by the demon of worry? Has he got a death grip on your throat? Do you want to be freed from his throttling assaults? If so, get a hobby, the more mentally occupying the better, and ride it earnestly, sincerely, furiously. Let it be what it will, it will far more than pay in the end, when you find yourself free from the nightmare of worry that has so relentlessly ridden you for so long. Collect bugs, old china, Indian baskets, Indian blankets, pipes, domestic implements, war paraphernalia, photographs, butterflies. Make a herbarium of the flowers of your state. Collect postage stamps, old books, first editions. Go in for extra illustrating books. Pick up and classify all the stray phrases you hear. Do anything that will occupy your mind to the exclusion of worry. And let me here add a thought. The more unselfish you can make your hobby, the better it will be for you. Perhaps I can put it even in a better way yet. The less your hobby is entered into with the purely personal purpose of pleasing yourself, and the more actively you can make it beneficial, helpful, joy-giving to others, the more potent for good it will be in aiding you to get rid of your worries. He who blesses another is thrice blessed for he not only blesses himself by the act, but brings upon himself the blessing of the recipient and of Almighty God, with the oft-added blessing of those who learn of the good deed and breathe a prayer of commendation for him. In San Francisco there is a newspaper man who writes in a quaint, peculiar, simple yet subtle fashion, who signs himself KCB. During the Panama Pacific Exposition, one of his hobbies was to plan to take there all the poor youngsters of the streets, the newsboys, the little ones in hospitals, the incurables, the down-and-outers of the workhouse and poor farm, and finally the almost forgotten old men and women of the almshouses. I saw strong men weep with deep emotion at the procession of automobiles conveying the happy, though generally silent, throngs on one of these occasions and KCB must have felt the showers of blessings that were sent in his direction from those who saw and appreciated his beautiful helpfulness. There is nothing to hinder any man, woman, youth or maiden,
from doing exactly the same kind of thing with the same spirit and bringing a few hours of happiness to the needy thus driving worry out of the mind putting it hors de combat so that it need never again rise from the field every blind asylum children's hospital slum old ladies home old man's home almshouse poor farm workhouse insane asylum prison and a thousand other centres where the poor needy sick and afflicted gather has its lonely hearts that long for cherishing aching brows that need to be soothed pain to be alleviated and there is no panacea so potent in removing the worries of our own life as to engage earnestly in removing the positive and active ills of others people occasionally ask me if i have any hobby that has helped me ward off the attacks of worry i do not believe i have ever answered this question as fully as i might have done so i will attempt to do so now one of my first hobbies was food reform and hygienic living when i was little more than twelve years of age i became a vegetarian and for nine years lived the life pretty rigorously i have always believed that simpler plainer living than most of us indulge in more open-air life sleeping working living out of doors more active physical exercise of a useful character would be beneficial then i became a student of memory culture professor william stokes of the royal polytechnic institution became my friend and for years i studied his system of mnemonics or as it was generally termed artificial memory then i taught it for a number of years and evolved from it certain fundamental principles upon which i have largely based the cultivation of my own memory and mentality and for which i can never be sufficiently thankful then i desired to be a public speaker i became a hobbyist on pronunciation enunciation purity of voice phrasing and getting the thought of my own mind in the best and quickest possible way into the minds of others for years i kept a small book in which i jotted down every word its derivation and full meaning with which i was not familiar i studied clear enunciation by the hour indeed as i walked through the streets i recited to myself aloud so that i could hear my own enunciation such poems as southey's cataract of lodore where almost every word terminates in ing for i had heard many great english and american speakers whose failure to pronounce this terminal ing in such words as coming going and so on used to distress me considerably other exercises were the catches such as peter piper picks a peck of pickled peppers or selina seamstitch stitches seven seams slowly surely serenely and slovenly or around a rugged rock a ragged rascal ran a rural race then too professor stokes has composed a wonderful yarn about the memory entitled my m made memory medley mentioning memory's most marvellous manifestations this took up as much as three or four pages of this book every word beginning with m it was a marvellous exercise for lingual development he also had the far-famed fairy tale of fenella and these were constantly and continuously recited with scrupulous care as to enunciation my father was an old-time conductor of choral and oratorio societies and was the leader of a large choir i had a good alto voice and under his wise discipline it was cultivated 
and I was a certificated reader of music at sight before I was ten years old. Then I taught myself to play the organ, and before I was twenty, I was the organist and choirmaster of one of the largest congregational churches of my native town, having often helped my father in the past years to drill and conduct oratorios such as The Messiah, Elijah, The Creation, and so on. When I began to speak in public, the only special instruction I had for the cultivation of the voice was a few words from my father to this effect. Stand before the looking-glass and insist that your face appear pleasant and agreeable. Speak the sentence you wish to hear. Listen to your own voice. You can tell as well as anyone else whether its sound is nasal, harsh, raucous, disagreeable, affected, or in any way displeasing or unnatural. Insist upon a pure, clear, natural, pleasing tone. And that's all there is to it. When you appear before an audience, speak to the persons at the further end of the hall, and if they can hear you, don't worry about anyone else. Later, when I had become fairly launched as a public speaker, he came to visit me, and when I appeared on my platform that night, I found scattered around on the floor, where none could see them but myself, several placards upon which he had printed in easily read capitals, Don't Shout! Keep Cool! Avoid ranting, make each point clear, don't ramble, and so on. When I was about fourteen, I took up phonography, or stenography, as it is now known. This was an aid in reporting speeches, making notes, and so on. But one of its greatest helps was in the matter of analysing the sounds of words, thus aiding me in their clear enunciation. At this time, I was also a Sunday school teacher and at sixteen years of age a local preacher in the Methodist Church. This led to my becoming an active minister of that denomination after I came to the United States, and for seven years I was as active as I knew how to be in the discharge of this work. In my desire to make my preaching effective and helpful, I studied unweariedly, and took up astronomy, buying a three-inch telescope, and soon became elected to fellowship in the Royal Astronomical Society of England. Then I took up microscopy, buying the fine microscope from Dr. Dallinger, president of the Royal Microscopical Society, with which he had done his great work on bacilli, and which, by the way, was later stolen from me. And I was speedily elected a fellow of that distinguished society. A little later, Joseph Lecomte, the beloved geologist of the California State University, took me under his wing and set me to work solving problems in geology, and I was elected in due time a Fellow of the Geological Society of England, a society honoured by the councils of such men as Tyndall, Murchison, Lyell, and all the great geologists of the English-speaking world. Just before I left the ministry in 1889, I took up, with a great deal of zeal, the study of the poet Browning. I had already yielded to the charm of Ruskin, whom I personally knew, and Carlyle. But Browning opened up a new world of elevated thought to me, in which I am still a happy dweller. In seeking a new vocation, I naturally gravitated towards several lines of thought and study, all of which have influenced materially my later life, and all of which I pursued with the devotion accorded only to hobbies. These were, one, a deeper study of nature in her larger manifestations, as the Grand Canyon of Arizona, the Petrified Forest, the Yosemite Valley, the Big Trees, 
the high sierras with their snow-clad summits glaciers lakes canyons forests flora and fauna the colorado and mojave deserts the colorado river the painted desert and the many regions upon which i have written books two the social conditions of the submerged tenth which led to my writing of a book on the dark places of chicago which was the stimulating cause of w t stead's soul-stirring book if christ came to chicago here was and is the secret of my interest in all problems dealing with social unrest the treatment of the poor and sinful and so on for i was chaplain for two years of two homes for unfortunate women and girls three a deeper study of the indians in whom i had always been interested and which has led to my several books on the indians themselves their basketry blanketry and so on four a more detailed study of the literature of california and the west and also five a more comprehensive study of the development of california and other western states in order that i might lecture more acceptably upon these fascinating themes here then are some of the hobbies that have made and are making my life what it is i leave it to my readers to determine which has been the better to spend my hours days weeks months and years in getting my livelihood and worrying or in providing for my family and myself and spending all the spare time i had upon these many and varied hobbies some of which have developed into my life work and i sincerely hope i shall be absolved from any charge of either self-glorification or egotism in this recital of personal experiences at the time i was passing through them i had no idea of their great value they were the things to which something within me bade me flee to find refuge from the worries that were destroying me and it is because of their triumphant success that i now recount them in the fervent desire that they may bring hope to despondent souls give courage to those who are now wavering uncertain and pessimistic and thus rid them of the demons of fret and worry now that i have come to my final words where all my final admonitions should be placed i find i have little left to say i have said it all reader in the chapters you have read or skipped indeed i have not so much cared to preach to you myself as to encourage incite you to do your own preaching this is by far the most effective permanent and lasting improvement can come only from within a seed of desire may be sown by an outsider but it must grow in the soil of your soul be harboured sheltered cared for and finally beloved by your own very self before it will flower into new life for you that you may possess this new life a life of work of achievement of usefulness to others is my earnest desire and this can come only to its fullest fruition in those who have learned to quit worrying End of chapter 25 End of Quit Your Worrying by George Wharton James